Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Welcome along to Gateway. Thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, We're into about week six of our series that we've called Walking with God. And over the last five or so weeks, we have, uh, I introduced the subject by talking about the fact that prerequisites were walking, with walking with God were walking in faith and walking in humility. The next week, Stephen spoke about walking with God through his teen years, allowing God to shape his identity. Chris and Shirley then spoke about walking with God through suffering and tragedy. Then we had Megan and Rajani who talked about walking with God through times of transition and change. And then last week, Mike and Daniel talked about walking with God in integrity of heart. This week, I'm teaming up with um, Jane Boone, who has been a member of Gateway for many, many years. And we want to talk about walking with God in prayer. When I introduced the series five weeks ago, I talked to you about the Hebrew word that's translated by our English word walk. It's the Hebrew word halak. And it's a word that's rich in meaning and it, 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 it's much more nuanced than simply a description of the physical activity of walking. There are at least four kind of nuances with this Hebrew word halak. One of them has to do with the idea of intimacy in a relationship. It has to do with betrothal and uh, engagement even. So Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2 in the Amplified translation says, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord, I earnestly remember the kindness and devotion of your youth, your love after your betrothal in Egypt and marriage at Sinai when you halak when you followed me in the wilderness. So the word halak has these ideas and hints of betrothal engagement. It wasn't that long ago that in English, if a romantic relationship were developing between a couple, they would be described as walking out together. So halak has this idea of walking out with the Lord. Secondly, halak has the idea of being shaped by those that you walk with. So Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, he that halaks with a wise man will become wise. You walk with people and the idea is that as you walk with them, they, they shape you and you shape them as well. Thirdly, halak has the idea of increase and of development, which is why Proverbs chapter 14, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 18 said, the path or the way the righteous person walks is, light of, is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So as you walk, there are things that open up to you. There's increase and development. And fourthly, the word halak has the idea of worship. So in 1 Kings 14 and verse 8, it says, David halaked with the Lord. He followed the Lord with all of his heart. So there is this idea of worship. And those four nuances fit incredibly appropriately into the role that prayer plays in walking with God. Developing intimacy, a shaping process, increase in development, and worship. So what I want to do tonight is start off with the worship that we did uh, a couple of days ago with Jane. Jane, and I mentioned this in the interview, is one of the few people that I know that I would call actually an intercessor. She has prayed faithfully for this congregation for more years than I dare to imagine. So let's tune into the interview. 
and then I'll make a few brief comments after it's finished. Jane, lovely to be with you. I have to tell you that with the Pentecost documentary that we did, I think I had more responses to your little segment on that documentary than almost any other. You, really? Yes, you were a star. Oh. And so we have to come back to you. For, the, for the, uh, the congregation, there may have been some that didn't see that video, Jane, don't know anything of your story. Couldn't you just give me a little pen sketch of your background and your journey? How long have you been walking with the Lord? Well, even as a little child, I was, my mother taught me to pray. And, but at certain stages in my life, I drifted off and not realising even that, that uh, the, the reality of God. But when I was um, 25, I think it was, I started to go to the Anglican Church. A neighbour invited me to go, and, um, and we had a spirit-filled vicar there, and he prayed for me at, a couple of years after that, and I got filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's probably where I started to pray. I would go to the, to the vicarage and we would have prayer meetings in the vicarage and I would always be there. Kids in tow if necessary, yeah. otherwise my hubby was looking after them at home. Jane, you are one of the few people that I know that I would call actually an intercessor. And prayer has been a huge part of your journey. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that was there at the very beginning? Do you, you know, did you have that operating in the beginning? How did that, how did that start? Uh, yes, um, my mother taught me to pray a prayer, or our mother taught us to pray prayer before we went to bed at night, and she made up the prayer. Um, it was just like blessing. Um, uh, looking after mum and daddy and thank you for our food and our clothes and and um, and praying for one another bless David and Ruth and Mary mm -hmm. and thank you father for looking after us okay. it was right like that okay um, so yeah. so obviously then it's developed over time yes talk to us about what it looks like now for you now um, now I can really say that God is the most important thing in my life. I, I'm just totally committed to, to him and prayer is the way to talk to God. So I talk to him, even though, even if it might not be in words, I, I'm doing it in thoughts and I'm doing arrow prayers with something, if somebody comes to mind, but I do have a scheduled special time. Okay, talk to us about that scheduled time. What does a normal prayer time look like for you now, Jane? Well, I get up early in the morning. I don't use an alarm because I don't know how to set it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But um, I get up just after six and um, get my shower and so on. And then by about a quarter to seven, I come out and sit down and start my quiet time. And the first things I do is I read a chapter from the Old Testament and a chapter from the New Testament, plus all the notes underneath. 
and then I have my breakfast and after that I come to the second part of my prayer time which is um, a lot, some of it is praying for the persecuted church around the world, I do it through Barnabas um, some of it is rehearsing and going over my many quotes that I've written in different books and I look through those and quote them again. I always read, by the way, um, aloud. I don't just do it in my head. I speak the words out. As I live on my own now, I can do that easily. Mm. Um, and so I pray that sort of generally sort of things first for about, yes, time-wise, 20 minutes. And then I do some other jobs, so I have another break. And then I will come back again and pray for my major thrusts of prayer, which for me is my family first. I have a large family, five children, 22 grandies, 14 great grandies. So I go through them one by one per day. Five children fits nicely in a week. And on the weekend, I do different things, but they're all written in my book, so it's really structured. But my second thrust is the church. The church has been so wonderful for me and so good for me that that is a top priority. And I, I pray for the individual staff members. I go through them all and um, sometimes I add extra bits. I usually say just be with Don or be with you, you know, mm -hmm. look after your day, help you to be wise in the things you say and um, to, and for all the different members of the staff the similar way. Wow. And then after that, the, the latter part is um, more for what needs that I am aware of that are in the church mm. and I'll pray for those people with those needs. Mm. Jane, that's really impressive, and I know that some people who are listening to you will say, well, that's wonderful for you, Jane, you're an older person, you have the time. Mm -hmm. I'm a young mum, or I'm a businessman, mm -hmm. I don't have the time. Mm -hmm. What would you say to people like that? I would say I understand that, however, there is always time. You can always find time. If you're a mum with young children, as I started off with four little ones um, at first, and I had another one later, but um, I could still pray. I still did it. Whether my husband was home or not, my husband was not a churchgoer. Um, and I talked to my girls the other day about this, and they, when you, you were going to ask me about what any hindrances. Well, they said to me, I said, I don't know whether I've got any hindrances to pray. They said, oh, Dad was a hindrance. And I said, not really, because he was always very happy to release me. And they said, well, when we were little, we would not dare go into your bedroom when, you were, <laughs> when you, the door was shut. Mum's praying. Yeah, yeah. We're not allowed to go in there. So, and, uh, yeah. That, remind, that reminds me of Susanna Wesley with the yes. apron over. I mean, she had I like know. 14 or 15 she had, children. She had a lot. Yeah, when, when she lot. had her apron over her head, nobody, nobody met near her. Nobody dared go near her, no. Yeah, she was um. such a prayer warrior. <laughs> what do you do, Jane, when you wake up 
because you have your re regular routine and a regular place too, don't you? Yes, I do. What do you do when a morning comes, you wake up and you just think, I don't feel like it today? I take absolutely no notice of those, those thoughts. I think, all right, I just do my routine. I'm not going to allow it, that to be snatched off me because I know that it will, it's so, so, so important. It's, it's who I am. Yeah. It's vital for me. The most difficult times probably are when I've got somebody staying mm. or when I'm staying somewhere else at one of my children's homes and then it's more of a struggle to fit it in, but I do my best. Somebody would say, but when you don't feel like it and your heart's not in it, it feels inauthentic and I really want to be an authentic person, what would you say to them? I talk to myself and I say, come on, Jane, get yourself together. Concentrate on what you're supposed to be concentrating. Keep, so, keep so, your mind so you, really, you really feel a calling, don't you? Definitely. Okay. I feel guilty if I, or guilt, no, that's no, not not a good word, but I feel there's something missing, there's something lacking if I haven't. So what would you it. say if somebody said, well, Jane, that's your calling, but it's not mine? I think it's everybody's calling to pray, even if it's just a short prayer, just a, but it's because it's, it's our relationship. We're making a relationship with God. Yeah. And that's vital. Relationship is everybody's calling, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yes. What, um, what do you do with the disappointment of unanswered prayer, Jane? How do you, how do you get your head round when you've been asking for something for perhaps a long time and nothing's shifting? I don't despair about it. I think, all right, it's perhaps not the time for that. And I know that can sound like a cop-out, but that's just how I feel. I think maybe there'll be a time and God will answer the prayer in time. Okay. Mm. okay. Have you read any books or, what, what, you know, something that you would say was a huge help for you in the whole area of prayer? What, if somebody said, Jane, recommend to me something that will stimulate me in prayer, what would you say? When I first started my praying life, I read everything I could gra grab. I read Reese Howell's Intercessor, some of these old books, they might not even be printing them these days. Um, I've read, read everything about prayer and intercession that I could ever get my hands on to. And we were talking before, Jane, and saying that in some ways both of us learn to pray by listening to people pray. Yeah. So both yes. you and I in early prayer meetings. Yes. Talk, yes. To, talk to me a little bit about that. When I started going to the AOG, which is now 49 years ago, that there was a group of old ladies that met once a week to pray. And I thought, I'd like to go to those prayer meetings. I don't know how the, much the hierarchy of the church was happy, whether they were happy about it or not, but I went along and I had these five or six old ladies and me, and I was in my 30s, and um, I was their baby. <laughs> but could they pray? Wow, they prayed up a storm. They were binding and loosing and all sorts of stuff in there, and my eyes opened wider and wider. And one day, evidently, I took one of my daughters, and she said, I couldn't believe it, Mum. <laughs> it was just so amazing. Exciting, yeah. thrilling. Mm. But it stayed with me, and I can still pray like that if I feel to. In closing, you got some people and they'd say, I'd, I'd like to be able to pray like that. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who's beginning their journey of prayer? I would say, 
um, get to a prayer meeting. There are prayer meetings on at church. There are you can gather some other people together and say, let's have a prayer meeting. Some of your friends, let's start one, and learn from one another. That's the way to learn. You, mm. you, it's not going to happen otherwise. Yeah. Jane, I want to just say personally from Karen and my perspective how grateful we are for your prayers. I know that you have really prayed for us and there have been times in our family journey where I've, I've actually asked yes. you to pray and you have been so faithful and I'm incredibly grateful. Um, I, I was just mentioning before how I'm concerned that most of the people that I would look to um, for praying like that are older people mm. and what might happen when our generation passes mm. and a new generation arises mm. as it says at the end of the book of Joshua that mm. did not know the Lord mm. I mm. find that frightening you too that would be a disaster an absolute disaster so we really need to have the younger ones coming in and the middle-aged ones coming in and and supporting the prayer meetings and learning how to pray so they can carry the baton on into the future. Perhaps we should pray for that baton to be carried on too, Jane. Yes. Hey, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. You're an absolute delight. Thank you, Don. God bless you. God bless you too. Thank you. <clears throat> I think we should declare that woman a national treasure. Um, she, she is just such a faithful prayer. Um, listening to someone like that can be sometimes a bit daunting, a bit overwhelming. You think, I could never be like that. Well, she wasn't like that in the beginning. She learnt, she learnt prayer. I, I want to just, in the time that we have, briefly talk to you about developing a prayer life or intensifying a prayer life, if you have one already. I want to do it under three very brief headings. This is a really simple exhortation. It's not a deep study into prayer, just a simple exhortation. The three headings are the priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and the place of prayer. So let me start with the first, the priority of prayer. Jane Mess mentioned that the essence of prayer is relationship. And I'm, I'm very aware, and she mentioned the fact that there are various callings and intensity in terms of a prayer life. Intercessors generally have a life of prayer that make the rest of us uh, stand off at a distance sometimes in absolute admiration. So we're not all called to uh, intercession, but I think all of us are called to develop a meaningful and fruitful relationship with Jesus, and that happens through prayer. In Luke chapter 11, we have Jesus praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which probably more rightfully should be called the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually found in John chapter 17. But um, it would be worth maybe studying that at some point in time. But the thing that I want to just draw your attention to is that of all of the things the disciples might have asked Jesus to teach them, they asked about prayer. They chose prayer. They could have asked about his dynamic preaching, his communication skills. I mean, Observers said, never a man spoke like this man. And they could have asked, Lord, teach us to communicate the way you do. They might have asked about his healing ministry. How do you do that? That leper, everybody's given up on him. That woman with the issue of blood, Jairus' daughter, that was phenomenal. You raised some, how do you do that? 
And what about turning water into wine? That's pretty impressive. And multiplying bread. They could have asked, how do you cast out demons? They never asked any of those things. It is recorded that they only asked Jesus one thing in terms of teach me. And it was teach me how to pray as you pray. I think Jesus anticipated that those who followed him, the Christ followers, you and I, would be characterized by our lives of prayer. I could choose numerous scriptures, but just in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He imagined that we as his community of followers would be a prayerful people. The Apostle Paul assumed the same. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, he told the saints at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Now that's pretty impressive. Did he mean go into your prayer closet, your prayer place, and don't come out? Well, obviously not. They had jobs and, and responsibilities in the same way that you and I do. The Greek behind the idea of pray without ceasing could easily be translated into our English by the phrase hacking, as in a hacking cough. All of us have had a hacking cough at some point in time. You know, it's that explosive cough that you just can't stop. And all through the day, you're, <coughs> you're hacking away. That's exactly the idea here. And when Paul says, pray without ceasing. Let there be something that comes out of you in, in moments when you've stopped at the lights, when you've got a moment at work, when you're quiet, when you're alone in the library, when you're at home in the house and the kids are quiet. There's just something that comes out of you. It's the cry for relationship that is that hacking cough kind of desire. He talked to the uh, church at Colossae and he said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then there's that fantastic passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, pray at all times, on every occasion, in every season, in the spirit, with all manner of prayer and entreaty. To that end, keep alert and watch with strong purpose and perseverance, interceding on behalf of all the saints, God's consecrated people. So both Jesus and the Apostle Paul anticipated that we as a community of faith would be people of prayer. The question, do Christ followers prioritize prayer? Is that something that's regular in the lives of people who say that they follow Jesus? Well, not always, unfortunately. A survey was recently done among hundreds of Christians asking them about their prayer life. And one of the questions had to do with the amount of time they spent praying on an average day. And the answer was 60 seconds, and it included grace. Pastors and full-time workers, thank God, were much, much better. They spent 90 seconds a day in prayer. You know what? Perhaps that sad survey result accounts for the state of the church in most places. And Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32 comes to mind, where Jeremiah lamented in saying to the people of Jerusalem at that time, God's words, my people have forgotten me days without number. Now I can imagine some of you thinking, oh Don, don't lay that guilt trip on me. I mean, I didn't come to church today to be made to feel bad. Build me up, make me feel good. Don't damage my already battered self-esteem. You know, I'd want to say to you, yeah, there are times for edification, there are times for encouragement, there are times also for correction and rebuke. And I'd want to say as kindly as I can, if the cat fits, at the very least try it, if not wear it. We need to be a people that pray. 
Some of us need to be jolted out of our sleep. And we you know, affirm the priority of prayer. The reality is so many just don't practice it on a regular basis. Perhaps we are lulled into some kind of non-participation by a doctrine that tells us that God is absolutely sovereign and God will do what God will do. And we complain when he doesn't. Why in the world did God allow? Why didn't God do? Why, 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 we say. And maybe it's because, as James says, we don't have because we don't ask. Most people fail to comprehend that God has made himself deliberately, as sovereign as he might be, dependent on his people and his people's participation to see his purposes realized on the earth. If, if he was just sovereign and did whatever he wanted to do, he wouldn't have said to you, ask for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. He would have just said, nah, don't worry about it, fellas, I'll just do it sovereignly. He says, you ask, because if you don't ask, what's happening in heaven will not happen on the earth. He said, ask for laborers to be sent into the harvest. Well, you know, God, you're sovereign. Why don't you just pick them and send them yourself? He says, because my purposes rest on your shoulders for their enforcement and administration. I want full partnership with you as my people. And if you won't ask, I won't do. In Ezekiel chapter 22, you can take time to read it, but it's a time of national apostasy and judgment is about to come and the passage clearly indicates that God longs to avoid the just and deserved judgment that's about to, uh, to fall. And it says he looks for somebody, an intercessor, somebody who would stand in the gap and say, no, God, don't do it. Don't do it, Father. And he said, I couldn't find one. There wasn't one there in the whole of the nation. There wasn't one there. That idea of standing in the gap, of standing in the breach, looks back to the time of the Exodus with Moses and Aaron. And in Psalm 106, verse 23, it gives us kind of a summary of that time when it says God said he would destroy them. That's the uh, uh, idolatrous Israelites. And he would have done so had not Moses, his chosen one, stepped into the breach or stood in the gap before him to turn away his threatening wrath. Man, it's really raining out there, isn't it? Mike is laughing because our, our, our building will be leaking like a sieve right now. We got, we got paddling pools in places upstairs. Forget about it. Numbers chapter 16 um, is Korah's rebellion. The nation rebelled and God sends judgment. A plague starts to sweep through the nation. It says in chapter 16 of Numbers, Aaron grabbed the censer as directed by Moses, ran into the midst of the congregation. The plague had already begun and he put burning incense into the censer and atoned for the people and he stood there between the living and the dead and stopped the plague. He said, God, no further. If the plague comes any further, you're gonna have to lay it on me because I'm standing in the gap between you and the wrath that is rightfully to be poured out, but I'm asking for mercy. I will stand in the gap. God is looking for people to stand in the gap and pray. Unfortunately, God's people complain more than they pray. They lament the, the decline in morality. They, they talk about the government's decisions and, and uh, we complain about all sorts of things. Complaining and lamenting doesn't change things. It's prayer that changes things. It's people who take this calling seriously, get on their faces or on their knees and say, God, please, would you have mercy on our nation? Would you forgive our sin? Would you move in our land and in our churches? 
The question in that day was, will he find anybody? And I wonder if God's question is pretty much the same today. As I say, some people say, well, if God wants to do something, why doesn't he just do it? Because he has planned and determined a relationship and a full partnership between himself and his people. And the implementation of his purposes on the earth rest on our shoulder in terms of the responsibility and the authority for the enforcement and administration of those purposes. Quite simply, if we don't, he won't. John Wesley said, God does nothing but in answer to prayer. E.M. Bounds, the great writer on prayer, said, God shapes the world through prayer. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock of heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon the earth. So there's the priority of prayer. There's the practice of prayer, by which I mean the habit of prayer, developing a habit of prayer. We look at Daniel and are amazed by the impact that one man had in Babylon, in a culture that was completely godless. He shaped it dramatically. And I think part of the secret of that man's ability to stand against the cultural current and not just stand against it, but to actually shape it and change it was his life of prayer. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says, He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he did aforetime, which means as was his habit, as was his custom. Perhaps he built that three times a day custom on the advice of the psalmist who cried in Psalm 55, Evening and morning and noon will I cry and pray aloud. Andrew Murray once commented, He who has set no time for pray does not pray. So, well, you know, I just, I just pray when I feel led. You know, I, I, I pray when I have the opportunity. I don't really have a set time, but I just, I just do it when the notion takes me. Well, I'm sorry, but the notion is not going to take you enough. Can I suggest that you make a set time to schedule your prayer? It's not legalism. It's well-tested common sense. Prayer is by far too important to be left at the mercy of your spontaneity, your authenticity, or your feelings. Again, listen to the psalmist. Psalm 5 verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. The word direct there is a, is a Hebrew word that has the idea of something that is very ordered and very systematic. It's a word that would be used to describe the laying out of a table or the setting of the army in array before a battle. Those things are planned. You don't do those things spontaneously. You plan and prepare. And the psalmist says, I will direct a prayer period and time to you that is, be, that is systematic, that is, that is my habit, that has been pre-planned. I don't think it matters what time of day you pray. Some people say you've got to do it in the morning. I don't necessarily think that. I don't, it, it, I don't mind, and I don't think he does, what time you pray. It really does matter that you do. Thirdly, develop a place for prayer. Jesus talked to his disciples on one occasion and said, when you pray, go into your closet, shut the door. That, that closet, by the way, the idea there is an inner sanctum. Somewhere, it could be a lean-to on the side of the house or it was an inner room. He said, go in there and shut the door. Make, find a prayer place. I, I, I pastored a number of years in Cambridge and I had a great big guy and he said, Don, 
I was visiting him one time. He said, come and I'll show you where I pray. He went into his bedroom, opened the wardrobe where the clothes are supposed to be. It was completely clear. His closet. He took this literally. And I don't know where he put his clothes, but he had the closet as a prayer time. I don't think you have to clear out your clothes. Some of you would take three days anyway. Okay? Some of you have got an empty closet that's ready to go. You know, I don't know which ones. He didn't have to be a closet. For Abraham, it was the altars that he built wherever he pitched his nomadic tent. For Isaac, the closet was the fields that he walked out into in the evening to meditate. Moses retreated to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Daniel went to his room. Habakkuk had a tower that he went up. Jesus found solitary places to, to pray. I don't know where you pray, but work out a place to go. When I was a university student, I went to Massey University and I got filled with the Spirit in my sort of toward the end of my time. But I would sneak away when I had lectures and I would find a place right out the back of the campus. I had to go through a fence and through some trees and I found this place where I would go and pray. More latterly, I would prayer walk. Now, the reason I walked was. I got up early and I found that I fell asleep in every conceivable position trying to pray. So I decided if I walked, I'd probably stay awake. And for the most part, I did. I think there was probably a couple of occasions that I slept, walked, but mostly that was how I did it. Not so much today. I don't know whether I don't need so much sleep, but I find a place, I have a place, and I go to it, I leave the lights off, and I just have my coffee and I sit and I pray. I don't know where you pray, but I would suggest to you that you have a place. If you are super busy, make your car your tent of meeting. As you're driving between appointments or driving to work, instead of listening to Mike Hosking on Talkback, pray. Now, I know some of you think that's a swear word, but I don't care. I mentioned in our talk with Jane about Susanna Wesley, an incredible woman. She actually had 19 children. She lost nine of them in infancy, including two sets of twins, which would make her incredible all by herself if she did nothing else. But if you were to walk through a rural village, the rural village of Etworth in England, sometime between 1700 and 1720, and peer through the windows of the rector of the Anglican church, you might quite caught sight of something really unusual. A woman sitting in a chair with an apron pulled up over her head, while 10 children prayed or played or studied around about her. By the way, two of those children were John and Charles Wesley. I don't think it's accidental that they grew up to shape the course of English history. It's been noted by many historians that the reason that England didn't have a French revolution was the Methodist revival led by Charles and John Wesley. Her prayers were incredibly effective. And that apron over Susanna's head was her tent of meeting. And her children, like Jane's, knew that when mum was under the apron, it was not worth your life to disturb her. And if you've read anything about how she disciplined her children, you would know you would not go near that woman. As a grown-up, I would not go near that woman <laughs> when she was praying. You know, I've noticed that so many people complain about to. You know, I'm too busy. I've got a busy life, Don. I just don't, I can't schedule prayer times. You know, I find it difficult to read the Bible or come to church and, and spiritual disciplines. I don't have the time. I've noticed that the people who complain that they don't have the time always have the time to take in the game, go to the gym, go to the party, meet new friends at the cafe. As Jane said, actually, it's all about priorities. So, well, Don, I don't really know how to pray. 
I mean, I want to, but I don't know how to do it. Well, like Jane said, hang out with people who do. I, I learned to pray by listening to people pray. For the first year that I was a Christian, I went to the prayer meeting, never opened my mouth. I was too scared to. I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't pray like these people prayed. I knew that I'd stumble over my words and look a fool. I didn't know enough scripture that they were quoting and praying and binding and loosing. And all the things that Jane talked about, I saw too. I didn't know, but I just sat for a year and, and learned how to pray, learned by listening. When I first came to Cambridge to pastor a church, I was as green as, I was 29, um, and I, suddenly I'm a senior pastor, and I, 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 I struggled to pray. I wanted to. But I had an elder, an Irishman, twice my age, and he said, Don, let's get together and pray. I thought, yeah, that's great. I'm going to do that. And when Laurie prayed, my God, heaven moved. And I stood in awe of the way that man prayed, and he taught me to pray. You learn to pray by listening to people pray, by actually starting to pray. So go to prayer meeting. As Jane said, do it. It's not a matter of legalism. If you want to pray, Learn how to pray. He said, well, man, I'd feel uncomfortable. You know, I'd be the youngest there probably. I'd be like Jane. I'd be their baby, and I don't want to be like that. I'll go when I'm a bit older. Can I ask you, how old would that be? When, when would that be? Oh, well, one day, someday. Well, the last time I looked, one day and someday weren't days of the week. Wednesday is. You say, well, why would you say Wednesday, Don? Well, Wednesday is the day we gather to pray. We gather in here in the morning, quarter to seven in the morning, and we pray for 45 minutes. We pray all around the auditorium. We pray on the stage. You'll hear people pray. And I want to just say this to you, uh, if you're under 40. Um, you will fall out of place, because most of the people in that prayer meeting are over 40. In fact, I don't know what the average age of that is. I'm frightened to work it out, because the, you know, I like going to the prayer meeting. I don't want to be assaulted when I get there if I say it's, it's a certain... But, but it's well over 40. And the thing that really troubles me is, is what happens when that generation passes. Will a generation arise that does not know the Lord? God help us if that's the case. God help the church if that's the case. Because we need people to pray. Paul needed people to pray. He said, pray for me that the door would be open. I've got lots of opportunities, but there are incredible adversaries. Pray for me. He constantly asked people to pray for him. We, we need one another. We need to be people of prayer. Just in finishing, I want to suggest to you that we all live out of a story. Everybody lives out out of a story. By that I mean we all have a world view, the way we see the world and our place in it. And that story dramatically affects how you live. Now I know some of you are sitting there and thinking, don't think I have a story. I don't know what you're even talking about. I just get on with life. I don't think too much about things. You know, uh, I mean, I'm happy if I'm prosperous and well and, and, and I'm comfortable. That is a story. In fact, that's our culture's story. Incredibly individualistic, incredibly focused on your comfort, your well-being, your convenience. That is the story of our culture. As Christ followers, we live out of a different story. We embrace a different story. We are Christ followers. We are co-laborers. We are called into partnership with him. And if you live in that story, then the thing that should really motivate you is 
I need to ask for his kingdom to come because that's what it means to partner with him. And that's about prayer. I want to encourage you to be a people of prayer. Would you come, musicians? The biblical story is very different from the cultural story. Unfortunately, too many people embrace the cultural story and when it comes to prayer is, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's early in the morning. I'm just not an early morning person. Friends, I wasn't an early morning person either. I was a student too. I know that that seems like, you know, was that when they had blackboards and, and, and chalk and, and, and when the world was black and white? Yeah, it was. So what? I was a student too, and I never went to bed before midnight. But I realized that if I wanted to be a Christ follower and a prayer warrior, there had to be some changes for me. And because I wanted to live in that story and have that story shape my life, I made those changes. This is our story. This is our song. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.